Tonight we're going to talk about the purpose of marriage. The purpose. Because I think if we understand the purpose, it will help us to be able to produce the outcome that God desired for us. I think the purpose of marriage is for us to to love, for us to receive love, for us to give love. And there's there's three things, I think, that are going on in marriage. Uh, That God wants us, first of all, to be givers. You remember in Acts 20, 35, it tells us it is better to give than to receive. How many people do you know who are always complaining about what they're not getting in marriage? But Jesus tells us it is better to give. When you receive, you get relief. When you give, you get growth. And this is the more blessed of the conditions. Now we look at Jesus. He's our model. And we know in Mark 10, 45, that he came uh, not to be served. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we have a beautiful description there. And I love to go back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, there's just an unforgettable description about the benefits of a couple. And it can play out in friendships, but especially in the marriage relationship. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Well, it goes on. It also says in verse 12, And though a man might prevail against one, one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I think about the attacks of Satan and how are we going to prevail over him. I need the encouragement of my spouse. Well, that's a beautiful description. So one of the purposes of marriage is to give. It was one year ago that my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. When she was diagnosed... The very next day, her dad died. After uh, this time, she hadn't told anybody in the beginning because here uh, you just have all of these mixed emotions because people are grieving over the passing of her father and she doesn't want to impose on others with her her needs and her condition. Uh, But I'm glad that I could try to walk through that with her. It was not very long after she had her surgery. And you know, when you go to the hospital, you find out about the blessing and the privilege of giving. There's just things you can't do for yourself. 
Some of the simplest things. Here, here was my main job. One of my main jobs was to pull on her sleeve. <laughs> because after you've had uh, a radical mastectomy and you've been through surgery, you know it's a little hard to take off your clothes, to take off your blouse. Um, I had a job to open medicine bottles. That was one of my jobs. I could chauffeur, I could uh, fetch, I could scratch, I could help out in a lot of ways that were tiny. And yet they're huge when somebody's in need. And so one of the invitations that we get when, when we get married, uh, not just in times of sickness, but in health, is to live a life of giving. God invites us to a life of generosity. And Jesus says, it's not only a blessing to the receiver, it's a greater blessing to the giver. So that's the first thing. I think it's uh, the purpose of, the, of marriage is for us to be in a position to give, but also to grow. Don't you think marriage is about growth? You know, in college, you go where you want to go. You eat what you want to eat. You spend what you want to spend. You watch what you want to watch. It's, it's uh, interesting that people are so eager to get married when they have all of this time and they can plan their schedule and their activities and their budget. But we long for that marriage. And all of a sudden, we have to divvy up domestic responsibilities. Who cleans what? Uh, we have to decide about handling affairs with the children. We have to decide where we're going to go during holidays and how we're going to spend that extra 20 bucks. We're having to give and to take. That produces an opportunity to grow. I don't think you really know love until you have a difference of opinion. That's when you get the chance to care for somebody else more than yourself. Scott M. Peck, in his book, The Road Less Traveled, one of my favorite books, defines love as the will, the will to uh, stretch, to attend the needs, the spiritual needs, and the welfare of another person. He says, you don't fall in love. I mean, he says you have a delightful experience. It's, it's something that that is a part of, of all of our relationships, but but it is a choice. And it's when it's inconvenient and when maybe you don't feel like it that you choose to do it for the spiritual welfare or for the emotional welfare or for the physical welfare of someone you love. That's when you really begin to grow. So here's an invitation that God gives to us. When we're married, we can give to another person but we'll also be made better people. We'll be made stronger, holier, wiser. And then there's a third thing. Because over in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 34, in verse 3, 
I love this verse. I think you've probably heard it before. It says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Do you like that? Now, we know that Matthew 5.16 tells us, let your light shine. But I don't know of any reason why we can't let our light shine. I know the members of the Godhead are perfect individually, but oh, how wonderful it is to consider Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together and how they have cared for mankind and made possible our redemption. And when we see them sharing in perfect love and in that holy scheme of redemption, it is magnificent to behold. And so when you see a husband and a wife coming together to glorify God. You see, that's the other purpose. Actually, the purpose of marriage is to glorify God, just like everything else in life. But you glorify God when what? When you're giving and when you're growing. That's how you glorify God. It's not just words, but it's, it's in a life that is abundant, a life that is, that is fruitful, holy, God is glorified because it is his word that made possible this relationship. It is his word that guides the couple as they encounter the problems of life. And so people look. And every day there's a problem. Every day there's something that they have to tackle together. And they have the opportunity not just to bring their emotions to it, That alerts them to the problem and the seriousness of it. But they get to bring their reason and think about it and engage each other logically. But there's something else. God informs us biblically. And his word guides us in a way that refines our intentions and refines our actions. Love is refined intention. And refined action, refined by the Word of God, the Spirit of God. So when these conflicts come up, when these problems come up, we can let our light shine by the way that we thoughtfully and respectfully handle them. I think people see God. Because without God, we know what that looks like. We go back to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. All the bitterness, anger, and malice. But on the other hand, here is something that people will sit up and take notice of. When a man and a woman with different ideas and opinions about things will thoughtfully and respectfully deal with the issues of life. The transitions whether or not we're going to move to Haleyville, Alabama. How are we going to deal with this transition? How will we deal with reversals? Because every once in a while in life, we are going to have a reversal and we may lose our job or we may have a financial crisis. Are we going to declare each other enemies or are we going to band together and solve this problem? There's aging boy, you really get a chance to love somebody when you're aging and uh, you begin to negotiate all of the difficulties. 
infirmity and death. The way you handle those is a wonderful opportunity to glorify God. So here's the point. When you have problems, instead of getting focused on the problem and thinking this is a danger or a threat or something that you, you, you wish never happened, I understand there are things that happen that are tragic. And yet, at the same time, they become moments, probably your best opportunities to glorify God. I I wish you didn't have to go through it, and yet it is through temptations that we grow. It is through trials that we grow. I call it the greenhouse of the soul. This is the chance to show our love for him more than ever before. So it's one thing uh, to try to use skills. You may meet with a counselor and they try to give you conflict resolution skills and you know listening skills and different things to try. I want to assure you, without love, they don't work. They don't work. But if you love each other, I think a few simple skills can be very helpful. So before we go tonight, I want to share a few simple skills with you for people who understand the purpose of God, that we're going to do good and not harm. We're going to give and bless. That we're going to grow and not bail or give up. That we're going to honor God, not dishonor God. So to do that, The opportunity is in the problems and the conflicts. I will get excited because here is an opportunity for growth. Here's an opportunity to give. Here's an opportunity to grow. So I need to take advantage of that. Well, what is the key? Go with me to the book of Philippians in the second chapter. We've referred to this verse earlier. I want to refer to it again. In Philippians chapter 2, he says... So if there is any encouragement in Christ, I love the word encouragement, any comfort from love, love, comfort, encouragement. This is what God wants for us. Any participation in the spirit, how do we have love and comfort and encouragement when we're following the teachings of the spirit and the word of God? If there is any affection, and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now in verse 3 he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Now that's the problem, isn't it? Because so many times in marriage, everything comes out of rivalry or conceit. Rather than unity and humility, rivalry and conceit. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count more others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, there are some simple skills there. When you look at that verse or those couple of verses, I, I think one thing that we need to understand is that when we have a conflict and it comes our way, 
that we need to be calm. I think that's a biblical principle, that we need to approach this calmly. And if we don't do that, here's what happens. Because it was so painful to talk to you last time, you made me so miserable, you hurt my feelings so bad, you know, I'm just not going to tell you next time I have a need. And if you want to do something, I'm just going to agree because I don't want to talk with you about it. And what happens is the problems really pile up and the emotions pile up and you have all of this unresolved conflict and you just don't want to go there because it hasn't been fruitful to discuss it and it hasn't been pleasant. It's been painful. Now we know Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 tells us that we're to be angry. There's some things that we can get angry about. There are six things God hates, seven are an abomination. There are times to, it's appropriate to get upset. But he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Which tells me that we have the capacity to limit the duration and the intensity of our anger. He couldn't command this if we didn't have the ability to control it if we want to. You remember, love is a choice. Love is the will to extend yourself to nurture or care for the well-being of another. This calmness is a choice. So we want to be careful that we're not going to have this lingering residue of unpleasantness that follows every discussion, every decision that we're dealing with. Number one, be calm. And number two, I would say, be courteous. Be courteous. I think he's describing courtesy here. When he talks about love and comfort and encouragement and the same mind, the same love, um, humility. Go with me over to the book of First uh, Peter and let's look at chapter 3. Listen to this beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. A tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. See, when you're courteous, that's what you're doing. You're blessing. For to this you were called, that you might obtain a blessing. As you give, you're going to receive. So he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, I want to see good days in my marriage, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do good and let him seek peace. Don't just seek it, pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know, when we have manners... Uh, when we have respect, uh, 
we're signaling to somebody that we care about them. I don't want to be demanding in my marriage. I don't want to be demeaning in my marriage. 1 Corinthians 13 describes love this way in verses 4 and 5. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, when we look at that description, we're beginning to understand this idea. Number one, I want to be calm. Number two, I should be courteous. So that, I want you to get this picture, so that when we're solving problems, you say, Hey, that was fun. I look forward to talking about the next one, seeing how we deal with that. Rather than dreading or hating the experience. Now he goes on to say in Philippians chapter 2 in the fourth verse, let us consider each other's interests and not just our own. So we start off with this climate of peace. I'm safe for you to talk to. You're comfortable approaching me. I am respectful. But I also need to be thoughtful. When it says that we ought to to be considerate, that gets back to that 412 mindset. Now understand that if we're going to fix problems, you can't fix something if you don't understand it, because you're inconsiderate. One of the most unhelpful and unpleasant things in all the world is a person who's closed-minded. You try to talk to them, they've got their mind made up, and, and you try to express your view, and they want to minimize it. They want to dismiss you, and they say it couldn't be that bad. Or they say, you don't really believe that. And so they inflict pain. So what we want to do is to be considerate. James tells us about that in James 1.19. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Don't get angry. Blow your top. You see, what happens in many relationships is... That if you say something to another person, you have to be careful. You're either walking on eggshells or you're walking through a landmine. It's one or the other. You're, you're afraid to put your whole weight down if you're walking on eggshells. If I say the wrong thing, I will just crush them. They're not very durable. And so it's going to be a tearful, emotional, hysterical experience. We can't just have a discussion and have different opinions. It's got to be a drama. Or on the other hand, you're afraid that you're going to detonate them. Uh, They're just absolutely going to lose their cool and they're going to blow up. Now here's what we do because of that. Because of that... I'm going to withhold information. I'm not going to tell you what I'm really thinking. Now, the problem is, without honesty, you have no intimacy. 
You just got two people pretending. They don't even know each other. That's not a real relationship. And so we've got to be able to be safe and we have to be able to be courteous, respectful, and we have to be considerate. So I'm not going to be quick to wrath. I'm calm. And I'm not going to be quick to speak because that says what I'm thinking is more important than what you're thinking. I've already made up my mind. I'm closed-minded. I'll tell you uh, the answer. I'll fix it. The problem is that you can't solve a problem with disrespect. You can't solve a problem when you're disrespecting somebody. So instead, James says, here's what you need to do. It's not often done, but he says, here's what you need to do. Be quick to hear. Be absolutely eager to hear. So when I'm in a conversation, what I don't want to do is talk against you as an enemy. And I don't want to talk over you in arrogance. I don't want to just talk to you with insensitivity. But I want to talk with you. That's what I want to do. I want to talk with you. Uh, in the month of November, Turner, when, in November, have you ever drawn a picture of a turkey? Did you use your hand? Sometimes we use our hand to draw a picture of a turkey. And we'll put it down on a piece of paper and trace that out. Now tonight, I want you to use your hand. We're not going to trace it. Just trace it in your mind. But this is some advice for not being a turkey. I don't want you to be a turkey. So let's think about some ways that we can listen and use our hand to remind us of how to do that more effectively. The first thing here, this thumb that we use to anchor things in our grip is for us to anchor this conversation in our Heavenly Father. Before the conversation ever starts, if we've got something, it's a little conflict, a little problem, we're going to deal with it. We start by thinking about His will. We want His will to be done. This isn't about me. And so I don't have to defend my ego. I don't have to get in an argument. I am just trying to be God's man or God's woman at this place, at this time, to give and to grow and to glorify God. I anchor it in God. Let God's will be done. Now, if you start that way, I want to assure you, you can have a different conversation than if you just take it up without having a mental framework to work from. The second thing is to get the facts, because I have found that oftentimes people are having arguments, and the truth is there's some mistake, there's some confusion. You know, the Bible tells us if you have all against your brother, you should go to him. Well, why should I go to him? Because the first thing you need to do is find out if there really is a problem. I would say more than half the time, there's not really a problem except for miscommunication. There has been an assumption. There's been a little gossip or slander. There's been some third party who has, who has said something. So the next thing we need to do is be sure that we have honest facts. 
that they're accurate, that they're not in dispute. Now, the third thing to do after we've entered in God and we've, as the scripture says, we've gone to our spouse and we kind of try to work on getting the facts of this matter is find out about her feelings. Because what happened is not near as important as how she feels about what happened. And so many times guys are trying to fix it when what she really wants is you to feel it. There needs to be a connection. She's not wanting you to to think that you're a genius or guru of all problem solving. She wants somebody to walk with it uh, with her, walk through it with her. So you need to ask, how did that make you feel? Oftentimes when we're looking for solutions to problems, we say, can I? I would suggest you ask this. How would you feel if I? You know, she might say, yeah, go ahead. But the question is, how would you feel if I? Or if I ask her to do something, would you? I could ask, well, how would you feel if, if I needed you to do this or asked you to do this? Puts it in a little different perspective. But I want to find out about her feelings. So we've got ourselves anchored in the Father. We have accurate facts, not assumptions, not gossip. We've got clarity. Uh, a lot of times it's that something happened and they have put an interpretation on it that is not warranted, is not true, is not justified. And that's what it's all. Get the facts, not the interpretations. Then find out how they felt and look at it from her frame. Her frame. What does she want? A lot of times arguments are going back and forth. And the question is, okay, what do you want? You want to see how she sees it. You walk around the problem, seeing it not just from your side, but from the other side. That's what elders do in a local church. They're sober-minded. Instead of getting called up, what they do is look at it from every constituent, every stakeholder's view. It looks different when you do it that way. And a husband does the same thing as he looks at it from his family's viewpoint and sees what their interests are. And then we have one last little thing to do. We start with the Father. We get the facts right. We're absolutely sure that we understand how she felt. And let me say this, by the way, it's not just that you understand how she felt, it's that she knows you felt what she felt. In other words, until she experiences you experiencing her, it doesn't count. It's called the empathy loop. We talked about Matthew seven twelve, but the question is, does that person believe that you get it here? I look at it from her frame, her perspective, and her needs. And then finally, the last little thing is the fruit. Because you see, there's what she wants, and there's what I want, but there's also what God wants here. And, and the final thing is that we want this conversation to be fruitful. 
We want it to be productive. We don't want to keep having the same thing over and over again, week after week after week. And that brings us to our fourth skill set. Number one, I'm going to be calm. And I'm going to be courteous and create this pleasant and respectful climate for working on problems together in a way that will glorify God, that will do good to my spouse and help me to grow. And then I'm going to be sure that I have considered her interests, as it says in Colossians 3, 4, and not just my own. I have uh, not behaved like a turkey But I'm looking at God's will and her will, not just the facts, but her feelings. I'm getting real clarity so that we can get real resolution. But here's the final thing. I've got to get creative. There's a book out by Willard Harley. Some of you know him. He has a book called His Needs, Her Needs. It's a great book. He's got a new book out. It's been out for a little while. It's called He Wins, She Wins. I've only read half of it, but I like the half that I read a lot. That's supposed to be funny. Think about it. He wins. Okay. The the idea of this book is that when you're solving problems, that you are going to stop considering one-sided solutions. I won't do it. I refuse. And so he suggests that what you need is a policy... A policy of joint agreement. That when we solve problems, we're going to not only identify the problem, not only investigate the other person's viewpoint, not only align ourselves so that they see us as an ally and not an adversary, but then we're going to use our imagination and come up with a win-win solution. Because most marriages, the ones that don't glorify God, are win-lose. They're win-lose. And and people have been taught this. They've been taught this by their parents. They've been taught this by their in-laws. They've been taught this by their friends. Win-lose. Let me describe it to you. When you have win-lose, what you're talking about is three different kinds of categories. First of all, you have the martyr. That is where I just sacrifice all the time, whatever you want. The problem with that is you're not really doing your mate any favor because in the long run, you're not very satisfied and you're just piling up, you know, resentment. Eventually, you'll probably blow up. You'll certainly never get closer to your spouse because you're always giving in. You're playing the martyr. I'm not saying there's not a time for compromise. I'm not saying there's not a time for sacrifice. But you can't live on that basis all the time. So that's, I lose, you win. On the other hand, there is uh, the dictator. I win, you lose. It's going to be my way. And and you know folks like that. We have church folks like that. It's going to be my way or no way. It's going to be plan A. Or it's going to be plan A. It's going to be plan A. I won't have B. certainly won't have C, some synthesis of the two, because I am not humble, and I am thinking of myself more than anyone else. 
So we have martyrs. That's a win-lose. We have dictators who tell others how it's going to be. That's a win-lose. And then we have anarchists. Uh, Harley describes anarchists as couples coming together and saying, you know what? You do what you want, I'll do what I want. And we'll just live two separate lives. There's no pain, no intimacy, no real relationship. It's a, a domestic relationship, but it's not really a marriage. So instead, what do we need? He says, not only do you need to be safe and respectful and thoughtful, you need to be determined. When we make a decision, I will not budge unless your heart goes with me. We're not going to take turns inflicting misery on each other. We're not just going to equally suffer. But here's what we believe. God created marriage as a blessing. And the only reason that this gets to be a problem is we're just not determined enough to look out for each other's interests. He says it's possible. Some people believe it's not possible. I believe all things are possible with God. That you can find a mutually agreeable solution. I want a policy of joint agreement. And maybe... It's not my favorite thing or your favorite thing, but it's something that we both agree on that makes sense. Now, see, here's the thing. If I'm sacrificing and I don't like it, I'm harboring up resentment. Whatever problem we have addressed is not, is not finally resolved, and we're not closer. So we think we got a resolution, but the truth is now, all right, we're moving forward, maybe, but we're a little further apart. But what happens in a relationship where a man and a woman says that we're going to look out for each other's interests and we're not going to settle for a decision that is not mutually satisfying, mutually agreeable? You see, when you get a mutually agreeable solution, you get a permanent resolution. That problem isn't just piled up till the next time. You get a permanent resolution. Here's what else you get. Every time you have a problem, you get closer. Because when I have a problem, I'm looking out for you and you're looking out for me. No matter what happens. It's a beautiful thing. So... We look at marriage. It's a covenant relationship that's permanent. Permanency is not a trap. God just knows that with his help that we can solve problems. We can handle anything that that life throws at us. It is an intimate relationship that is both romantic and quite educational, but where we go deep and truly get close in our connection with each other. But it's also a purposeful relationship. What is the purpose? We will glorify God together by the way we thoughtfully and respectfully deal with the issues of life. We will let our light shine. Here's what love means. Love means 
You can count on me. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And you want your beloved to know, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm always looking out for your best interests. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And no greater love is there in marriage than when we are genuinely interested in our spouse, not doing things out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, looking out for their interests and not just our own. That's how you glorify God. That gives you opportunities to share the gospel. And tonight, if you're not a Christian, I hope that you'll want to be a part of this life of glory and giving and doing good. And I want to extend to you the Lord's invitation so that you can be joined to him and then he can bless your marriage. Won't you come as we stand and sing?